This week on the show, we are migrating our servers from Linux to FreeBSD, an article that we found on Hacker News, cluster provisioning with Nomad and Pod on FreeBSD and how to do that, a little bit about the libbsd dialog development efforts, FreeBSD 13.0 base jails with ZFS and VNet, all handmade, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 441, Migration to BSD, recorded on 25th of January 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow for various sponsoring options like no ads or other things where you can support us. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this fresh episode. Well, at least at the time as we are recording this. Uh, but for you, it's fresh as well, since you just uh, opened it in your podcatcher or podcast application. And we have, of course, headlines. That's we, what we start with every time. And this one starts why we're migrating many of our servers from Linux to FreeBSD. And that got our attention when it was posted on Hacker News. So we should cover it here. Yep. I start off saying that they've been a Linux. Uh, user or even a GNU slash Linux purist um, since 1996, uh, but they've been a FreeBSD user since 2002. I've always uh, successfully used both operating systems, each for different specific purposes. I have found on average BSD systems uh, to be more stable than the Linux equivalents. By stability, I don't mean uptime. Too much uptime means too few kernel security updates, uh, which is wrong. I mean that things work as they should, that they don't break from one update to the next, and that you don't have to revise everything because of a missing or modified basic command. I've always been for development and innovation as long as it doesn't uh, necessarily, automatically and unreasonably break everything that is already in place. And the road that the various Linux distributions are taking seems to be that of modifying things that work just uh, for the sake of it, or to follow the dictates of the kernel and those who manage it, but not only. Uh, some time ago, we started a complex, continuous, and not always linear operation that is to migrate where possible most of our servers and that of our customers from Linux to FreeBSD. So why did we pick FreeBSD? There are many alternative operating systems to Linux and the BSD family is varied and complete. FreeBSD, in my opinion today, is the all-rounder uh, system par excellence. Um, i.e. it's well-refined and suitable both for use on large servers or small embedded systems. The other BSDs have strengths that, in some fields, make them uh, particularly suitable, but FreeBSD, in my humble opinion, is suitable for almost every purpose. Uh, so back to the main topic of this article, why am I migrating many of our servers uh, that we manage to FreeBSD? The reasons are many, and I'll take through uh, some of those now. The system is consistent. The kernel and user land are created and managed by the same team. One of the fundamental problems with Linux is that, we shall remember, uh, it is a kernel. Uh, everything else is created by different peoples and companies and groups. Uh, on more than one occasion, Linus Torvalds, as well as other leading Linux kernel developers, have remarked that they care about the development of the kernel itself, not how users will use it. In the technical decisions, therefore, they don't take into account what is the real use of the system, but that the kernel will go on its own path. 
This is a good thing as uh, the development of the Linux kernel is not held back by the struggle between uh, distributions and software solutions. But at the same time, it is also a disadvantage. Um, by contrast, over in FreeBSD, the kernel and its useLand, i.e. all of the components of the base operating system, are developed by the same team and in the same repo, and therefore have a strong cohesion uh, between those two parties. In many Linux distributions, it was necessary to deprecate ifconfig in favor of the new IP command because new developments in the kernel were no longer supported by ifconfig. Um, and because without breaking backwards compatibility and other previous kernel versions or having functions on the same network interface managed by different tools. In FreeBSD, with each release of the operating system, there are both kernel and useLand updates, so these changes are consistently incorporated and documented, making the tools compatible with their kernel side updates. Because FreeBSD's kernel and user space get shipped in sync, whereas the Linux kernel comes out and then each distro picks a different kernel version to base their distro on, but is trying to all use the same user land, they have these different things that are trying to keep it all working together. So in other words, in FreeBSD, there is no need to revolutionize everything every few years and changes are made primarily in the form of additions uh, that can enrich and not break each update. If a modification was to change the way it interacts with network devices, if config would be modified to take advantage of that and remain compatible with the old syntax. In the long term, this kind of approach is definitely appreciated by system administrators who find themselves with a linear, consistent, and always well-documented update path. Then they say, FreeBSD's development is still driven by technical interests, not strictly commercial ones, although there's lots of commercial interest in FreeBSD. They say, uh, Linux and the related distributions now have companies, or sorry, contributions from many companies, many of which, for example, Red Hat, push, uh, justifiably, in the direction of what is convenient for them, their products, and their services. Uh, being big contributors to the project, they have uh, a big clout, so uh, indeed, their solutions often become the de facto standards. Consider systemd. Was that really a need for such a system? Uh, while it brought some advantages, it added uh, much complexity to the, an otherwise simple and functional system. It remains a divisive story to this day, and with many asking, but was it really necessary? Did the advantages brought balance the disadvantages? Uh, you know, 70 binaries uh, just for initializing and logging and a million and a half lines of code just for that. But Red Hat threw the rock and many followed alongside. Uh, because sometimes it's nice to follow the trend and hype of a specific solution. So even FreeBSD has big companies behind it collaborating in a more or less direct way. The license is more permissive uh, so not everyone who uses it commercially contributes back to it, but knowing that FreeBSD is at the base of Netflix CDN serving hundreds of gigabits per second, or the WhatsApp servers, uh, or Sony PlayStation, uh, or parts of macOS, uh, surely gives confidence at this level. These realities, however, do not have enough, or, yeah, that last sentence doesn't quite make sense. Anyway. Uh, so then they talk about Linux has Docker and Podman and LXC and LXD, uh, but FreeBSD has jails. Uh, FreeBSD jails are a very powerful tool for uh, jailing or containing and separating services. Uh, there is controversy about Docker not running on FreeBSD, but I believe, like many others, that FreeBSD has a more powerful tool. Jails are older and more mature and by far uh, than any of the containerization solutions on Linux. I think 
uh, so this isn't in the article, but I think part of it is the the namespacing concepts they have on Linux are interesting in that you can composite a bunch of these different pieces together, but they what they seem to miss is that in a jail you have this top level concept of there's a jail with an ID number and like a, a struct in the kernel that makes that container exist. Whereas these namespaces, you can kind of layer them on there, but there's no way to tell that it still exists or or to reference all of that composed bits together as one logical unit. Uh, and it's, mm. you know, so, so there's a bunch of interesting and powerful things in uh, the way Linux does containerization, but lacking that kind of literally the container part. Um, it's all these layers, but there's no overarching container that holds it all together so that you can reference all of those bits as one thing hmm. uh anyway uh so th back to the article uh jails are efficient and are well integrated throughout the operating system all major commands like ps kill top etc are able to display jail information as well there are many management tools but in fact they all do the same things they interact with freebc's base and create custom configuration files Personally, uh, they're very comfortable with Bastille BSD, but there's lots of other options. When I needed uh, Docker, I launched a Linux machine, often Alpine, which I think is a great minimalist distribution, or Debian. But I'm moving a lot of services from Docker to dedicated FreeBSD jails. Docker and containers are a great tool for rapid and consistent software deployment, but it's not all fun and games. Containers, for example, rely on images that sometimes age and are no longer updated, and I provide pose security issues uh, that should not be overlooked. Uh, then they talk about Linux has a bunch of file systems, ext4, xfs, butterfs, and zfs with some manual intervention, whereas FreeBSD has ufs and zfs. Uh, ufs2 is still a very good and efficient file system, and when configured to use soft updates, capable of performing live snapshots of a file system. This is great for backups. ext4 and xfs do not support snapshots except through external tools, like Datto BD or snapshots through the volume manager like LVM. This works, of course, but it's not native. ButterFS is great in its intentions, but still not as stable as it should be after all these years of development. Yet, uh, go see what Jim has written about uh, ButterFS. <laughs> Some pretty crazy things. Uh, FreeBSD supports ZFS natively in the base system, and it brings many advantages. Uh, the separation of datasets, using separate datasets for jails, uh, being able to use boot environments uh, to make snapshots before any upgrades or changes and being able to, from the bootloader, choose those different uh, snapshots. The FreeBSD boot procedure is cleaner and simpler. Linux has always used excellent tools like Grub or Lilo, although not so much anymore. FreeBSD has always had a very linear, linear and consistent boot system with its own bootloader and dedicated boot partition. Uh, whether you're using MBR or GPT or something else, Things are very similar and consistent. I've never had problems getting a previously system to boot after a move or recovery from backup. On Linux, however, Grub has sometimes given me problems even after a simple uh, kernel security update. Then there's a section about uh, FreeBSD's network performance or this network stack being superior to Linux's and often so its performance. And there's another section about uh, the straightforward system performance analysis where they talk about that VMstat, for example, in a single line can tell you that the machine is struggling for CPU or is IO bound or RAM is short or GStat minus A 
So there's all these bunch of little things that make up their experience. And then they have a section on Beehive last. Uh, for their purposes, Beehive is a great virtualization tool. KVM is definitely more complete, but since they don't have any special or specific needs not covered by Beehive on FreeBSD, they found that on average, the better performance with this combination. On FreeBSD, however, the KSM is missing, which in some cases can be very useful. And so they will uh, abandon Linux for FreeBSD, question mark? Obviously not, just as they haven't for the last 20 years. Both have their uses, their space, and their strength. But if you, but if up to you, but it's up to you now to have had 80% Linux and 20% FreeBSD. The perspective is to invert the percentages of use and, where possible, directly implement solutions based on FreeBSD. Oh, cool. That's good. And we'll follow along if they have future articles like that. And this created some. Uh, attention on hacker news so we thought we covered it here all right next up we have a clara systems article freshly written cluster provisioning with nomad and pot on freebsd so this is about provisioning a lot of jails kind of like yeah kind of what we were just talking about in the previous article many modern production environments are built on top of docker or kubernetes but turns out they don't have to be there's a nice freebsd way to do the same thing mm -hmm. And that's what the Nomad and Docker, uh, Doc, Nomad and Pot combination is. So the yeah, so Nomad is a, a cluster scheduler. Uh, basically, the idea is if you have a bunch of FreeBSD machines, and you're like, okay, I have this workload, I need to spin up a jail. It decides which machines to put the jail on, and so you can keep coming back to it and say, all right, I need another machine, another one, another one, and keep standing up, and it'll basically take care of load balancing which jails go on which machines and figuring out you know how much disk space or network or whatever resources you're going to need and deciding how to schedule that work across whatever FreeBSD machines you have put together as a cluster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then pot is taking care of the the jail abstraction framework and so on for it. Uh, yeah, so the article starts with that many modern production environments are built on top of Docker and Kubernetes. Um, and Again, as we mentioned, uh, you can replace those with, uh, or most of those uh, with Docker and, uh, no, not with Docker, <laughs> with Nomad, Nomad, Nomad and Pot. Uh, while there have been efforts to bring Docker to FreeBSD, none of these are really mature. The presence of Docker in so many areas and the lack of Docker support in FreeBSD might make you think that you are out of luck if you want DevOps workflows for managing clusters of computers. But Pot is a jail abstraction framework and management tool to uh, aim uh, to the aim that uh, it should replace docker in your devops tool chest and it has support for using nomad for orchestration of clustered services the team behind pod are aiming to provide modern container infrastructure on top of freebsd and have been progressing over the last three years to get pod into production uh, that project was started in 2018 with the ambitious goal of taking the best things from linux containers management and creating a new container model based on FreeBSD technology running on FreeBSD. So what does pod do? It does jail configuration, data set, file system management, because we need data and uh, storage space in those jails, the network management, like which connects to what and what kind of uh, services they should be able to, to do, and resource limitation, like how much CPU and memory and uh, other things should be assigned to each jail. Yeah, so it's it's combining the um, technology FreeBSD has for all these things into a tool, kind of like what Docker does. The idea is, you know, we use jails to get the containers, ZFS to get the data sets and file system management, 
VNets to have completely isolated network stacks for the jails, uh, you know, PF to do the the NAT and so on and forward the ports or whatever, and then RCTL and CPU set to do the resource limitations. Mm -hmm. And so you say, well, I don't have a cluster yet, but I still want to play around with a pod. Then you can run a mini pod. So for that, you need to install a mini pod, a mini pod port package install mini pod. And that allows you to play around uh, first without having to go through a lot of hoops and uh, set up work to have a pool of nodes to use. Uh, we need to configure a pod before Minipod will be able to run correctly. And you are referred to the pod installation instructions that are very detailed for what all the port config controls do. So you start um, with three config values, the pod underscore ZFS underscore root, pod underscore network, and pod underscore XTIF in the pod configuration file. That's uh, external mm -hmm. interface. Like which Nick is external interface, which Nick goes at yeah, the internet. Like uh, your your bridge into the wide, wide world. And this is file, this file is located on the user local etc slash pod slash pod.conf. And then once you've set those variables, uh, like pod ZFS root should be your well, your pool and then the data set on that. Or yeah. Which, which data set in your ZFS pool you want to have all the pot stuff built mm -hmm. underneath. Keep it nice and ordered. And the network, that depends on your local network and pot external interface, they have IGB0, but it could be any other NIC you have. Then you start pot init, which runs the initialization settings, and then pot vnet-init to set up the networking. And so then you can do a test ping to see if those bridges that are created this way are reachable. Then you can uh, run the pod D in it so to uh, tidy everything up again. And to use Minipod, then you run Minipod-init, which creates a couple of uh, backups for your rc.conf in case something goes wrong and sets up other things like console, Nomad, and other services for you. And then you can run Minipod-start to enable these resource limits and get the the pod going on. Minipod ships with an example Nginx web server that can be used for testing this and the config is described in the article as well. So kind of nice and again this is not meant for production use this is for your own test lab at home or in your laptop even. Yeah like so basically trying to do play with cluster stuff at home without a cluster is complicated and so they created Minipod as kind of a cluster in a box so that you can play with this stuff without having to go and set up you know four separate hosts and and do all the plumbing that's normally required to do a big production deployment of mm -hmm. this yeah and we should thank the uh, pod developers here in particular luca pizzamiglio and uh they've said they ha he has a, about 10 other contributors there uh so they made all these things possible to play and work uh with for us cool very nice Next is our news roundup. In this episode, we have libbsd dialog for you, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, if you're not familiar with libdialog, it's what draws the little um, kind of text user interface things that, like the FreeBSD installer and the thing for picking your time zone and selecting your keyboard language and all those kind of tools used in FreeBSD. Um, and they provide basically this set of plumbing to do things like draw little windows and ask you yes or no questions and ask you, you know, what IP address you mm -hmm. want and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so the problem is that that library is GPL licensed. 
uh, and FreeBSD is working very hard to get free of any GPL uh, code. And so Alfonso wrote libbsd dialog, which basically aims to re- provide the same API and, the, and be able to you know, draw the same boxes, um, but without using any GPL code. And so he created libbsd dialog, which is now being used in FreeBSD's uh, development branch. Uh, I know that we recently found a problem where it got confused if you're we're using serial and didn't support colors, uh, but that's already been fixed. Um, but that was causing a problem with the installer for me a couple okay. weeks ago. Uh, but they show an example of you know the basic stuff of drawing a message box. This is hello world, and then doing some more complicated stuff, choosing a different theme to make stuff instead of the normal gray and blue. You can have green if you want, or cyan, or whatever that color is supposed to be, uh, and ask yes and no questions, and then figure out which uh, thing the user selected and more complicated stuff like during the install where we're extracting four different tar files you can see progress for each one the overall progress which ones are done and all kinds of pretty things and shows how to do all that mm-hmm. yeah pretty straightforward c code and yeah the the pictures uh, that are and there. big thanks to alfonso for doing the work because uh, we've needed mm-hmm. that for a yeah, while yeah and it's a nice building block into not just the installer but other dialogues we could present to the user for a bit more user-friendly approach. And then we have an article about FreeBSD 13-based jails with ZFS and VNet. So it's a whole jail episode this week. So they say here, uh, uh, as of late, I have had some pain points with IOKH, which I used since I started using FreeBSD in 2017. I came from a Ubuntu with LXD plus ZFS background, and IOKH had the command line interface I wanted that felt familiar with LXD at the time. Well, IOKH seemed dead now, or seems dead now. Its last release was in 2019, uh, and its last commit at the time of this writing was September 30, 2021. Okay. Uh, Not that long ago, but it's not (laughs) eternity in open source time. Uh, Of course, that commit isn't in what's in FreeBSD's ports, unless you use the develop package, and that package has some issues, at least for the author here. Uh, so, for example, IOKH list doesn't work right. Mm, okay, that's kind of a central command. So, because of this, I decided to take up the challenge and making my own base jails. To start, I will give credit where credit is due. And as I say, I followed these resources to get me to where I am. Michael W. Lucas's FreeBSD jail mastery book never fails to get you a book, a good introduction to the jails and the whole things uh, you can do with them. Then he lists two other links. And as well as the IOKH and their FSTAP files. Okay. So first we start off, uh, we release jail. This is the base image that we can use to make cloned images or jails from a thick jail and the base jail. So they're creating a data set here and mount that at slash jails. Uh, that's the foundation for everything. And then they'll create a few other data sets for the releases of FreeBSD and templates for running uh, jails. Okay, so these are also straightforward ZFS uh, datasets. And next, we need to download the base OS as well as lib32 for our jails. The contents should be extracted into slash jails slash releases slash 13.0 release in the end. So that's fetching from the official FreeBSD mirrors, the TXZ files that are the same that I used for base operating system install. And so we are extracting those into those uh, datasets. Now let's update the jail contents. So this is the, the ENV uh, update variable, uh, uname underscore R. 
equals 13.0 dash release in this case. And then they run FreeBSD update because then it knows about which update you want to do or which version it is. And you run the update. Which version you're, you're yeah. running. Yeah. So you're, um, this allows you to run a FreeBSD 13 jail, even if your host is a, uh, a newer yeah, version. You like kind what? of fake what you have locally to uh, FreeBSD update and you point that to uh, the target directory of the data set. And so it doesn't update your main operating system, but uh, to jail there. Then we can copy our local etc, uh, etc local time and our etc resolve conf files into the jail so that you have name resolution and proper time of day. And then we have our base that snapshot it so we can clone it. Excellent use of ZFS here. We will clone this to our template folder after we take the snapshot. So we can always get back to that and the clones aren't that big initially. Okay, so next we're creating our skeleton. Since we want to be using NullFS mounts for our base jail, we're going to want to make another clone and wipe out the contents of that new clone. Here I think uh, you can debate whether or not you want to take a clone of the base 13 release clone from earlier, or if you want to clone from the release, but they opted to clone from the release. I think uh, IOK did many things similar. Many one, uh, yeah. But then they go through and basically delete uh, all the base oh, yes. system files, like, you know, slash bin, slash that boot, slash lib, uh, sbin, user bin, etc. Well, um, you need them, but they're going to nullfs mount them so that they have one copy of FreeBSD used by many jails. So they only have to FreeBSD update one thing and then all the jails ah, yes. will be yeah, updated. That's the, that's the trick. And they kind of talk how they do that and how they do uh, templates as well, uh, how they set up their FS tab. Um, so they've got the long way here of, of nullfs mount for each of these directories, like bin, boot, lib, libexec, sbin, user bin, user lib, user sbin. Um, uh, the way that EasyJail does it is in the uh, template thing, all of those directories are symlinks to the right thing under slash base jail. So bin is a symlink to slash base jail says bin, and then they nullfs mount base jail just one time instead of having to create 14 nullfs mounts per jail, and that might be mm. a little cleaner. Uh, and then they go and show what their jail.conf looks like. Basically, uh, they said how all the jails are inherit, you know, the start and stop commands and are allowed to mount devfs and so on. And then they create a specific jail that's, you know, this is going to be called testboxin13.0. Uh, it's going to use a uh, vnet interface and then they use the jib command uh which is a tool in base or uh that comes with one of these packages uh that allows you to um, automatically manage bridges and so on for vnet jails and then they specify their custom fs tab that will get run as part of mounting that jail and they explain what all this stuff does and then they show what they have to do on the host setup enabling the jail service copying uh, the jib, installing the jib command, uh, configuring their interfaces. So they create a uh, jail ethernet. Uh, that's basically gonna be a bridge that they're gonna connect to a bunch of stuff. Uh, show what you need to do if you have a jail that needs shared memory, like a PostgreSQL or something. And then uh, wrapping up showing what, you know, if you run JLS to list the running jails, you can see them and you can jexec into a jail and configure all the stuff uh, and all of that. And then they have a note at the end here saying that a bunch of people have pointed them at BSD or Bastille BSD as another jail manager. And they say that looks cool too. Yeah. So if IOKH isn't alive for some reason or they don't get updates anymore, 
then this could be an alternative. But you could also run it on your own in the, these instructions you can follow along. Okay, then we have a bunch of beastie bits collected for you. The first is OpenBSD on the Pine phone uh, over at exoticsilicon.com. And it's showing us really how to get this thing with a big warning at the beginning, of course. Uh, so these, the information presented on these pages is not intended to be followed as a guide to installing OpenBSD on your own PinePhone device and must not be used for this purpose. So this is just a uh, proof of concept or that you could do this, but it's not very uh, usable for some reason. Or you, they have similar... Uh, yeah. Right. I think in particular, they say, unlike most single board computers, the PinePhone contains a rechargeable battery intended to power the device. Correct configuration of the charging circuits, including various safety features such as thermal protection, will not be enabled by the current FreeBSD kernel as of the time of writing, meaning you could set your phone on fire. Yeah, so yeah. be careful. Don't hurt yourself or other people. You know, this isn't screwing around with the Raspberry Pi. This has a lithium ion battery, also known as this is dangerous. Know, explosive yeah, potential. It could be uh, hurting. Uh, so they divided their article into six parts, building the installation media and installing. Part two is build, booting the completed installation and initial information gathering. Part three is about starting to, to debug the USB issues they saw. Part four is investigating errors with SXLRSB. Part five, controlling the LEDs and vibration motor. Oh, yes, you want the phone to vibrate, right? And part six is about the PMIC and battery charging. So check out these individual parts if you're interested in this kind of hacking and going deeper into that. Um, and they have a bunch of screenshots and the tools and uh, commands they run are all listed there. And then we have an article about FreeBSD hardening as a GitHub gist where the commands are listed and a couple of instructions or descriptions are given. So this is not just put the port to 22222 instead of 22. Uh, this is not uh, the way to do proper security hardening, but they say you should remove a couple of key pairs, disable DSA, ECDSA, like older ciphers and stuff. So these are really good instructions, I think, to harden your SSH if it's exposed to the internet. Yeah, so check those out. And then we have making the ZFS file system. That, that sounds cool in itself. Yeah, this is like a... Oh, it's an interview with Matt Ahrens. Hour and a half long uh, interview with mm -hmm. Matt Ahrens on uh, the Changelog ah, podcast. Yes, so after this podcast is over, you listen to that one. <laughs> you can never have enough podcasts to listen to. Uh, then we have a Linux user's experience switching to OpenBSD. Uh, what's funny is I think about three minutes into the podcast, there's a call out of um, my other podcast. <laughs> See, it's podcasts all the way down. It's one big link to the next uh, yeah, so here's the, the YouTube video about a Linux user's experience switching to OpenBSD and how that is looking like or what kind of experiences they had there. And the next item is add Nix, a purely functional package manager to FreeBSD. Uh, what's wrong with the current package manager, I might ask? No, this is just... Uh... It's a different yeah, kind right. of package manager. So uh, the description reads, Nix is a purely functional package manager. Ah, yes, I see functional. This means that it treats packages like values in purely functional programming languages, not functional in, oh, it's working or not. Uh, this is functional programming. Uh, so this is 
functional programming languages like Haskell. They are built by functions that don't have side effects and they never change after they have been built. FreeBSD support in Nix is not fully complete yet. This commit only brings the Nix package manager to ports. Hopefully this port will streamline the work of bootstrapping of Nix packages on FreeBSD. And thanks to all the kind folks who contributed to the porting efforts, it was a fun journey. Okay. That's interesting. I've heard quite a bit about Nix, but I've never uh, had time to dig into it. Just yeah, yet. but maybe one day we have some bit more time to, to dig into. And last but not least, here's an interesting tool for you. IOZTAT or IOZSTAT <laughs> is a storage load analysis tool for OpenZFS. It's basically IOSTAT, but with the S replaced with a Z because it's for ZFS. Um, so it works very similar to, I think we talked about it before on the show, ZTOP. Yeah. Uh, which is written by uh, Alan Summers uh, and is a Rust program that basically works like GSTAT or TOP. Uh, so starting with FreeBSD 12.2 and later and all the FreeBSD 13 versions of ZFS, there are a set of sysctls that give you the reads, read and write IOPS and read and write bytes per second for um, each ZFS data set. Uh, so using IOZAT or ZTOP, uh, you can actually see which data sets are causing all the reading and writing on your ZFS pool. So, you know, if you ran ZPool IOSTAT and you saw that you're doing 100 megabytes a second, but you're like, but who, which, which of my 300 data sets is doing this? You can use IOZAT or uh, ZTOP to see that. I uh, think one of the reasons why we mentioned IOZAT here is uh, when Jim tweeted this about two weeks ago, I think, when he created it. Um, it didn't work on FreeBSD yet, but uh, very quickly, um, Adrian DeGroot, uh, who's KDE guy, I think, on Twitter. KDE Dude. Uh, and does a bunch of KDE stuff on FreeBSD. Yeah, KDE Dude, yes. Um, and he and someone else, uh, I think, was it maybe Thomas Hurst, uh, contributed the FreeBSD support for it. So as of version 1.1 of IOZAT released about seven days ago, it has uh, it works properly on FreeBSD. Ah. And so there's a little example output here where, you know, if you run IOZAT-Y-C1 on pool SSD, it shows all the data sets broken down and showing, you know, which ones are doing the reading and the writing. Cool. That can be useful, especially when you are in the situation mm -hmm. to, like, who is clogging the system again? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, if you have... A separate ZVOL for each Beehive VM, and your pool's busy. It's like, well, which one of you mm. is causing that? Excellent. Yeah. So it's great. Uh, and it works for file systems and volumes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of internal tools by uh, that delivered in ZFS itself uh, that digs into. Yeah. And well, this is basically so on Linux, uh, it's basically a bunch of files and slash proc. And on FreeBSD, it's a bunch of sysctls uh, like ksat.zfs.dataset.poolname. Data set or something like that. Um, but they just show the counter since ZFS started. Mm. Uh, and so these tools like ZTOP or IOZAT um, show you the delta per second. So you can actually tell, you know, how many megabytes per second is happening instead of just, oh, this data set is written a terabyte since I rebooted but I rebooted three months ago. So is it busy now or was it busy before? <laughs> uh, and that's why these kind of tools uh, take that information and make something more usable. Out of it. Yeah, very good. So thanks for the people who ported that and made it available also on FreeBSD. 
This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the only secure online backup service you can trust. Even paranoids need backups. So Tarsnap works via the command line in the same way as the tar command, except for the tar file ends up getting created in the cloud. But importantly, all of your data is encrypted on your machine before it goes to the cloud, and your encryption key never leaves your machine. So it means no one at Tarsnap, no one at Amazon, and no one anywhere else can access your backups without the key. So as long as you keep the key safe, your data is safe. And Tarsnap also uses Colin's uh, differencing engine, uh, which is able to um, deduplicate data and avoid having to send data that's already backed up into the cloud again. So it makes it really nice for backing up your laptop, even on the road, uh, because it can make those backups as small as possible. By doing deduplication and compression, and then the encryption, you make sure that you're sending only the stuff that actually changed and uh, that it's all safe before it goes to the cloud. So check them out, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. So time for our feedback and questions section in this episode. We have two questions or two feedbacks for you. And if you want future things like these mentioned here in this section, not very empty, then send it to us at feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first is Scott with a question about ESXi. He writes, hi team, I have an ESXi server with, among other operating systems, about 17 FreeBSD VMs. Each VM is performing some specific function or resides in some security zone. I have a VM for my Tor relay, database servers, DNS servers, web servers, SMTP mail hub, external mail server, external reverse proxy, syslog receiver, wow, network monitor, forward proxy, etc. The three or four security zones I have are separated by a router performing simple packet filtering. I'm considering using jails to virtualize these functions and collapsing them onto a single FreeBSD VM rather than individual VMs and would like your opinion on the following. So here's a couple of questions. Will the overall memory use of the SXI host decrease? I would expect so. Um, you'll, there'll be some, by using jails, uh, you'll get some savings. Uh, the other big thing is, you know, if you have 17 VMs and each of them has a couple hundred megs of free memory uh, and then is using the rest, if you combine all those into either one really big VM, or I think you mentioned you have three or four security zones, maybe one per security zone or something, um, it means kind of the free memory across all of the ones you combine into one machine is now shared by all of them. And so you have a bit more flexibility there. And that might mean that, you know, overall, if you combine all 17 VMs into one, you might be able to shave a couple of gigs of memory off of... Um, well, how much you allocate to the mm -hmm. VM, uh, you know, in total versus this, uh, you know, the sum of all 17 VMs versus what you make the one big VM. Uh, and in general, the just overall resource utilization on ESXi will be less because fewer VMs. Uh, and then also the CPU will be less just that, you know, you don't have crontab running in 17 VMs, you have crontab running once or, well, you might still have it running 17 times if you have a, uh, 17 jails, but. Yeah, it's a bit more consolidated this way. But yes, I think in general, your memory and CPU usage would be a bit less, and especially just the memory efficiency would be better. Uh, and also, ZFS uh, can do smarter caching of uh, blocks in the, the arc and so on, especially if all 17 of your jails are clones of a data set, then 
uh, you know, if BinSH is actually the same block on disk for all 17 jails, ZFS will cache it once instead of 17 right. times. Yeah. So this will add up. And will the CPU usage on the SXI server decrease? Decrease? Uh, probably marginally. Like I wouldn't expect huge savings. Most of it's going to be the applications and the applications are going to be the same. But, uh, you know, one or four VMs instead of 17 will definitely use a little bit less resources. Uh, ZFS compression-wise, instead of 17 times doing the same compression, instead of one? Uh, again, that depends if the blocks are cloned or not. If you have a separate data set for each jail and they're not sharing any blocks, then ZFS doesn't know they're the same block and they're just 17 different blocks. Um, but if they're clones, then they will be shared. Then? Although compression doesn't really add up to much CPU yeah. usage unless you're doing high <laughs> levels. That's negligible these days. Uh, then the question is, what version of FreeBSD should the jail host run? Well, latest and patched? Uh, the host will need to be the newest, uh, at least as new as whatever jail you're going to run. So if you have you know, a mix of, of 12.3 and 13.0 jails, your host needs to be at least 13.0. Um, you can run any older jails on it. You just can't run a jail newer than the host. Yeah, this is the limit. Um, so you probably want the host to be the newest version, like 13.0, and that'll be 13.1, uh, hopefully before too long. Uh, what kind of jails do you recommend? That depends slightly. Uh, do you actually need separate network stacks inside the jails? Uh, VNet jails have uh, advantages, especially something like a Tor Relay probably does need to... If the uh, application that's going to run in the jail needs to change the network configuration, it will have to be a VNet jail because they're not allowed to do it in a regular yeah. jail. Um, but you know, my DNS or my database server, my DNS, and my web server, those are normally just regular jails, uh, and they just share an IP with the host, and that has uh, some advantages of being you know less setup and and fewer moving parts to the network. But at the same time, depending on scalability and so on, having a bunch of separate network stacks from VNet can actually scale across your CPUs better than having it all running off the one host network stack. Yep, makes sense. Um, so it depends. Uh, VNet's good now. I, I, there's no reason not to do it. Uh, but depending on what you want to do with the network configuration, um, like you had mentioned the security um, zones, you might want to do VNet jails and then have a separate bridge for each of those security zones that's connected to a specific VLAN on the host uh, and so that you keep those networks completely separated between those, those separate zones. So you'd have a VLAN for each zone that goes out from the host and then that VLAN connects to a bridge for each of those zones and that's where you would connect all the e-pairs from the jails. Mm -hmm. And that would ensure that uh, you know a jail in security zone A cannot talk to the network of security zone C. Etc. Although, you know, regular uh, previous two jails do allow you to restrict which IPs the jail has access to. Mm -hmm. And what file system should a jail host run? That's easy. ZFS, <laughs> yes. For sure. uh, what or how best should I maintain currency of both the host OS and jails? Yeah. So if you look at some of the stuff we talked about earlier in the show, um, using like IOCage or Bastille BSD and so on, if it depends what you're after and how, what you're trying to do. Um, if you do the kind of the thin jail or base jail concept where each of the 17 jails uh, is sharing one data set either via NullFS or symlinks to NullFS, um, then it means when you run the FreeBSD update for that template, basically, 
you're going to update the version of FreeBSD in all 17 of those jails in one go, uh, which can be really handy and good. But is there a reason, like, does your DNS server purposely run an older version of FreeBSD, like still using 12.3 and not upgrading to 13? Then you might want separate for each so that you can update them one at a time uh, so that, you know, you can make sure it goes well and decide to undo it and so on. Uh, so that's a little up to you. Um, but I mostly do the base jail concept, although looking at getting away from that a little bit, I don't know. I'm currently investigating how to make jail environments a thing, boot environments uh -huh. for jails. That'll be interesting when we get there. But um, for the host OS, it's just usually FreeBSD-update or, you know, I do something slightly more complicated, but that's because I have a hundred physical hosts to deal with, each with, you know, two to ten jails. Uh, so that's a bit of a different beast. Um, so yeah, uh, FreeBSD update for the host and, you know, package upgrade, uh, for the jails, um, it depends on what jail manager you decide to use. If it does all for you, or if you're just using, you know, jail.conf and doing it manually. Um, but if you use the base jail, then you can just update the base jail once and update all 17, uh, jails in one go, or you can have separate ones, uh, and do them individually, uh, just like you would VMs. And then should you use VNet, we kind of talked about that. Uh, it does, it will make the security zones easier. Um, there's an article on the Clara site about using VNets and VLANs together and doing interesting stuff with that. That might be helpple to you there. Yeah. And what jail manager, well, plus TBSD has some good track records these days. Yeah. Uh, so Bastille VSD is a good one. Uh, EasyJL still works. Uh, I'm mostly only still using it because of muscle memory after like 15 years of using it. Um, yeah, I think Bastille BSD is definitely interesting. Um, I've not actually used CBSD, but I know people like that, although it's mostly a beehive manager that just happens to also do jails. Um, but B Bastille BSD does seem to be uh, the, the current mm. hotness. Yeah, unless you want to do it manually. That's uh, by so many jails, it's difficult. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Uh, he writes many thanks for your efforts in making this podcast. The community benefits greatly. Thank you. We're actually doing it exactly for this purpose. Um, then we have another short question from the home about a newbie question. That's fine. It could be newbie questions. Uh, that goes, I have very simple and probably very noob questions. How to reset ZPool property to default? With ZFS dataset, I can use ZFS inherit, blah, 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 for it. But I can't find anything similar for the ZPool. System is FreeBSD 13, but I would expect the answer will be the same for all ZFS 2.0 systems. Right. Um, what setting have you changed? There's not many that you can change away from the default. Yeah. Right, like Is the, the um, property boot FS. There, uh, user properties for pools don't exist yet. Oh. I have the pull request open for it, but <laughs> I've I've got a, I have to add some tests to it to get okay. that merged. So, like, there's boot FS. Um, the default is none. If, I think if you just set it equals blank, uh, it will go back to the default. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a way to like if you set it back to the same value as the default, that might do it, but there's not really a concept of that. Although I don't know, like most of the properties of pool that doesn't make sense for like read only, um, is just on or off. There's not really yeah, a those default who have a dash in their description, um, their value. Right. 
But like, but, yeah, like looking at it, other than like auto trim on or off, like off is the default and then you change it to on or off, but th there's no way to go back to the default, but because they're not inherited, that doesn't really make a yeah, difference. It's a, it's a toggleable, either it's on or off. So yeah, basically there's no way to go back to the default per se, but I don't know which property you're using where that matters. Uh, so just zpool set back the property to the value you want, uh, whether that's the default or not is is there. There's very few pool properties that you can set to something mm, explicitly more than temporarily yeah. anyway. So it's not that bad of a new question. It's kind of advanced already. No, like it's a perfectly <laughs> yeah. reasonable question. Um, and there's not a great answer in that they're usually not things you need to reset like with ZFS Inherit. Because, uh, you know, ZFS Inherit eventually, I guess when you do it on the root, it does go back to the default kind of, but that's almost more of uh, an accident than a feature. <laughs> you can use Inherit for that too, yeah. Okay. Right, well, you can only for data sets, yeah. not for the pool. But uh, there are not that many pool properties where you can adjust things. That's probably why it wasn't implemented yet, because there was no need yet, or such a big need. Exactly. Uh, and I think for pool properties, you just set them to blank. And uh, for the pool user properties, which is not a feature yet, but is in, under development, uh, you set it to blank and it will erase yeah. it. And if it's about the pool name, then you can just export and import it on a new name. Yes, to rename the pool, you have to uh, export and import. Okay, learn something here again. And that comes to us finishing this episode for you. And you can now go to listen to the next podcast. Again, we'll be back here next week. Check out our Patreon while we're uh, offline. And then we'll be fresh and re relaxed, maybe a little bit, uh, next time when we uh, do another podcast with Tom and myself. I guess I won't see you next week, but uh, see you in three Next weeks. time when Alan is on, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>